Listener Production. A quick warning. This episode features references to suicide and violence against women. Please listen with care. Welcome back to Crime Insiders Forensics. This week, another in-depth conversation about the intriguing world of forensic science. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. In our first few episodes, I've spoken to a lot of experts who work at places like the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, which is a government organisation and is considered part of the public sector. However, much like the law enforcement industry is private investigators and private security, you can do the same thing in forensics and be a privately practising forensic expert. So that's the topic of today's conversation. And our guest, Professor Joe DeFlew, is just the person to tell us about it. Cases that I've been involved in are cases where there's a homicide and a critical piece of evidence or piece of information still be reasonably expected to be visible on the body years later needs to be found. Joe is a senior forensic pathologist from Sydney. He has extensive expertise in all aspects of forensic medicine. But today, I'm looking to knuckle down on the specifics with Joe and talk about aspects of private practice that don't often get spoken about. Situations like exhumations of bodies, fatal car accidents, and how we differentiate between incidental death or a suicide. This was an incredibly compelling conversation, and I'm really excited to get into the topics we discussed. Before all that, though, we'll go back to when Joe first entered the industry and started his career as a forensic pathologist. I started immediately after medical school, which was in the early 80s. That was in South Africa in Cape Town. I then specialised as a forensic pathologist, finished that in the late 80s. Shortly after that, moved to Sydney where I worked at the Department of Forensic Medicine, and I was there until about 2015. I finished off as the clinical director there, and then after that, um, and until now, I've been in private practice. In terms of the freelancing work, who contacts you and what sort of things are you contacted Mm. about? Look, it's mainly defence lawyers. Um, Sometimes it's prosecution, Crown solicitors, coroner's courts, insurance companies, um, you name it. it. I don't take on work directly from persons who are involved in trials. So if a person's accused of something, if they get hold of me, it's please ask a lawyer to speak to me. So could you give us just some examples of what mm. sort of cases lawyers might be approaching you about and what sort of services that you provide do they need at that time? Look, it's varied. I deal with both the living and the dead. So in, t- in terms of the living, it might be injuries sustained by a person during assault, during a car crash. Um, it, it, it may be a medical condition. Often photographs are provided, statements, and I get asked some, some questions, which I then respond to. And it's really dependent on the case. Um, there might be a question of, for example, is this a minor injury, a serious injury, or a really serious injury. And of course, the the reason why that's important is that a person might be charged with grievous bodily harm. And if it's not a really serious injury, then 
um, the elements of the charge aren't, aren't made out. I've always wondered that. What constitutes grievous bodily oh. harm as a charge? Yeah. Things like, is there permanent scarring or disability? Was there a chance of a serious complication occurring? It's a bit problematic. So, for example, you, you might have a person gets pushed. They land on their outstretched arm. They might get a fracture of their wrist, okay, broken bone. Now, often the treatment of that in the good old days is a whiff of anesthesia um, and a good pull on the wrist to straighten it out, and then you put it in plaster. Okay, those were the good old days, and that's certainly what I've done. These days, it's often a matter of a surgical incision and a quick plating of the wrist. Which is better? Well, that doesn't really matter to me. The problem is that if you make a cut in a person, an operation, and there's a permanent scar, it's then almost automatically a grievous bodily harm. Oh. You know, so... Was there a true need for that surgery? Possibly not. You know, so you can argue from that perspective as an example. So there's that type of work. Um, there's certainly homicide cases where I get asked to review the case. Might be asked by the prosecution. I might be asked by the defence. Um, and then it's a matter of generally by now the autopsy is long gone and all that's available is photographs, microscopy slides sometimes, lots of statements. Toxicology. Yeah, you know, all those types of things, and I can make an assessment of that. And um, I may or may not agree with the original pathologist. So under what circumstance would you do a second post-mortem? Look, in general, they're done quite uncommonly in, in Australia in any case. I, I know in Britain they're very common. Um, in Australia they're very uncommon. Effectively, a second postmortem is done where there is a serious concern about something that may have happened in terms of an injury, let's say, where there are concerns as well that the postmortem may not have been done correctly or may have missed things or may not have answered certain questions. I sort of think of one of a person who fell or got pushed or was in some way killed on a ship in a foreign country. An autopsy was done, and the autopsy pathologist concluded it was homicide. I was asked to do a second post-mortem. I got flown to that country. I was taken around in armoured vehicles under police guard at all times. Um, the autopsy was done on uh, something that was better than a kitchen table, but not much better. And um, frankly, the post-mortem that had been done it hadn't really had that many incisions made in the body. And, um, you know, it was actually a bit problematic, especially considering the pathologist that had done the original post-mortem was standing next to me. So who then took you over? It was an insurance company, as it turned out. They had insured the ship, uh, the ship and the ship owners. And there were allegations in terms of safety from marauding gangs and similar. As it turned out, it was a person who, I believe, for some reason, jumped from one part of the ship down um, and sustained his injuries as a result of that. When you do turn up with armed vehicles, whatever, police escorts, <laughs> what do you actually do when you are in the post 
supposedly been a thorough post-mortem done and you see some scars, what is the procedure you do and go through and do the fact that those scars are already there and, and yeah. things have already been sampled, um, specimens taken, does that interfere with your process? Well, assuming that incisions or cuts into the body have been made, and you make a fairly standard series of incisions. So if there's something called the Y incision, the letter Y incision, which ex- essentially extends from behind the ears along the side of the neck, comes to the top of the chest and from there down to the pubic region. And as a result of that, you can remove all the organs from within the trunk and then, importantly, restore the body, sew the body back together again, and it looks... You have to open the the cavity. Yeah, yeah, you open the cavity, you remove the front of the chest plate, and then you remove the organs. And there are various ways of removing organs, but effectively you land up with all the organs removed from from the trunk You then examine each one of those in turn. You might take samples from those, depending on the nature of the post-mortem. You might do toxicology testing on blood, on urine, et cetera, et cetera. And then sooner or later, the organs go back. Now, for the head, you make an incision, which essentially goes from ear to ear of the scalp. um, And then you can remove the skull, the top of the skull with a saw that sounds suspiciously like something's going on in in a dental practice that you'd rather not have done to you. So... That's your standard post-mortem. Now, in terms of a second post-mortem, it basically becomes a matter of unpicking all the stitches, finding what's going on, what's been done, trying to piece it all together again and do further examination as may be required. In in the case that I was referring to, well, not much had been done, so it was a fairly straightforward post-mortem. In cases where a very detailed post-mortem has been done, it can actually be really, really difficult to work out what's going on because effectively... You've got all these organs of the body in multiple small pieces dissected in whatever way. Um, there's quite a challenge to doing the second postmortem, and then after that's been done, the body again gets restored, sewn back together again. But there also could have been a period of time between the postmortem one and postmortem two. Oh, so sure, you're certainly. also dealing with degree of decomposition in the process. Yes, absolutely. Um, you, you might have decomposition happening, and um, on the other hand, the body might have been frozen. In the process, too, of freezing, does that alter the tissue? Yes, it and does. The samples and the, of crystals of water and what yes. sort of things do you get in there? Yes. Um, that's a really... Well, to begin with, you've got to defrost the body in some way. And generally, that takes many days. There's a lot of body there to, to defrost. Mm. Um, now, once you've finally defrosted your body, if you're going to look at anything under the microscope, it really, really doesn't look the same anymore. It's very hard to interpret tissue that's gone through a freeze cycle um, because all the, the crystals... Expanding, uh, yeah, contracting. Expand, contract, yeah. blow up the cells, that type of stuff, yeah. It's not very nice. How do you defrost a body? It, it's actually tricky because if you try and leave the body out in room temperature, the outside will start decomposing before the inside is defrosted. What you land up doing is you use warm towels and similar to try and get the body as defrosted as close as you can. And even while partially frozen, you then remove the organs and try and defrost them separately. There's unfortunately no simple way to doing this. Um, It's often a three, four day process. And then you have to be concerned about any insects, anything else in the vicinity or? Well, hopefully they're none. (laughs) 
Well, this is in ideal conditions rather than a tropical place where it was almost a kitchen table. That's yes. Thing. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, in terms of other things that you do, exhumations. I mean, sort of, we've we've been led to believe that exhumations aren't that uncommon through television series. In your experience, what would lead to an exhumation? In my experience, exhumations are very, very rare. I've done a few in my 35, 40 years of practice, probably less than five, I'd say. You do them when you have a real significant concern about the cause of death, that there's been a mistake or a cover-up or something like that. So cases that I've been involved in are cases where there's a homicide and a critical piece of evidence or piece of information which was provided and which can still be reasonably expected to be visible on the body years later needs to be found. So let's say the story given is that the person cut off the little finger as a trophy. Right. Something very similar to this occurred in one case. Now, even though close on 100 photographs of the body were taken during the postmortem, guess what, of course, wasn't a, a photograph. There were absolutely no photographs with the little finger showing for some reason. It just, that's just the way it is sometimes. So we exhumed the body to look at the little finger. In other words, the critical aspect of the confession which was wrong or the information provided by someone, etc. The number of times that I'm looking at photographs and trying to go to the side one more little bit or, you know, take that camera slightly further aside, you know, and you just never see it. So one, one reason is to negate or to discredit an alleged confession. Yeah. So what other sort of circumstances? Another case I've been involved with was a death in custody. Allegation was one of homicide versus suicide. So depending on the nature of the injuries, could you tell if it was a suicide or a homicide? Um, I don't want to get into further detail, no, no, but that was fine. one example. Um, another example, um, and this has certainly been the case um, in Britain, where a poisoning is suspected especially under medical circumstances that, that a person's given. So uh, Mr. Harold Shipman, Dr. Harold former, Shipman. Former doctor. Former Dr. Harold Shipman. And just for those who don't know. Yes, he, um, he, he was a really nice family GP who happened to have a bit of a problem with his patients dying. Sooner or later it came out that, in fact, he was poisoning them, and I think it was with opioids. Um, so the detection of opioids like um, morphine, um, in tissues of the body, even though severely degraded at that stage, um, would be evidence that that person had received morphine when there they hadn't no been prescribed. There's no clinical indication. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know some of our listeners will want to know, what is the actual process for exhuming a body? Effectively, um, the personnel at the graveyard use their grave digging equipment to go down to where the coffin is. It depends to a certain extent then on the status of the coffin. So it might have collapsed, it might have dissolved away because of groundwater, that type of thing, or it might, might still be very much intact. If it's intact, 
It's then a matter of removing the coffin from within the grave together with the body. If there's been severe damage as a result of groundwater or whatever, you might actually land up doing a formal excavation in an archaeological sense of the area. So for privacy and and to stop ghouls and, and voyeurs coming in and people who are just basically visiting their relatives, their deceased relatives, how do you protect the sanctity, I suppose, and yeah. privacy? Yeah, well, I think it's very important. Effectively, um, you land up dealing with the matter fairly similar to the way you deal with a crime scene in general. So you have an outer cordon, you have an inner cordon, Um, You certainly have screens around. It's not something which is a spectator sport, I think it's fair to say. It's something that you try and keep the public away from. One of the things I think is interesting is that people often think everybody gets a post-mortem or nobody gets a post-mortem. Mm. Often as the person writing the death certificate, you're concerned that you might have missed something, but also you just don't want to subject families to post-mortems because it is quite a traumatic experience for families to go through. And also the resources aren't there to do everybody. Mm. And as much as we'd love to know how everybody dies for future mm. and to improve treatments... We can't. So do you think people are less inclined to give a necessary cause of death now? Are they more nervous about doing it? So, so to begin with, um, if a person dies, their treating doctor, if they can, must issue a death certificate. And effectively, they can if the case is not referable to the coroner. Importantly, they have no discretion as to whether they issue a death certificate or not. They either must or they must not. Now, in terms of which cases in New South Wales, broadly, where a death certificate cannot be issued by the treating doctor, it's any death where the cause of death is unknown and truly unknown, not just, gee, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be absolutely sure. An 18-year-old sudden death. Yeah, as an example. Or even a 65-year-old sudden death. (laughs) Yeah. Um... Anybody that dies of injuries, suicide, accident, overdose, that type of thing. Anybody that dies where it's not the expected outcome of a medical procedure. People that die in custodial settings, and that's very broadly defined. Um, so, uh, all for very good reasons, I think. So, in all of those, you cannot issue a death certificate. And if you can't, it then gets referred to the coroner. Now... If it gets referred to the coroner, it then becomes a matter of what will the coroner order to determine the cause of death. That might be obvious. A little old lady might have fractured a hip in a fall, might have been noticed by people in the nursing home, broken hip, and they die of their broken hip. Now, the coroner can decide that no further investigation is required of that case. You might, for example, have a decision by the coroner, let's only do an external examination of the body. Just look on the outside. Look at x-rays, do a CT scan of the body, do a limited examination of the inside of the chest, but not the abdomen or the head. Only look at the head. You know, there are all these options available. 
And then sooner or later, a decision gets made by the coroner as to cause of death based on information provided. On the other hand, we are back at our the 90% of cases that don't go to the coroner. So only 10% of cases land up with the coroner. The 90% that land up not going to the coroner, in those cases, in theory, a non-coronial autopsy can be done. Okay, where effectively, out of interest, curiosity, but I'm not using curiosity in the flippant sense, but in the intellectual curiosity sense. So if, so. You've, if you've got somebody who's died of um, cancer that spread throughout their body, but you don't know what the primary yeah. cancer okay. was. Yeah, for example. Their family might want to know if they're predisposed to a, spe- a particular mm. type of cancer. Absolutely. In those cases, an autopsy can be done, which is consented by the family, not ordered by anyone, but consented, like any other consent. And then an examination based on that consent is done. I do some non-coronial post-mortems, often called Human Tissue Act post-mortems, hospital post-mortems, that type of thing. And um, in those, it could be anything from please just look at the heart, look at the brain, to please do a full autopsy, you know, and anything in between. In terms of extra work that you do in road trauma injuries, Mm. what sort of work are you doing there? Over time, I've done a fair amount of work in terms of... Um, injury seen in accidents and what can make the roads safer for us. So looking at the effects of seatbelts, I I spent quite a bit of time looking at injuries caused by fuel tanks on motorbikes. You know, what type of fuel tank is a good one to impact and what's a bad one? This is something you don't think of with a forensic pathologist, that you actually might be affecting change and modification, because you think of the coroner's report saying, oh, we recommend X, Y, and Z to stop this happening again, but you're actually involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, you, you, you land up um, being involved in research projects where you look at injuries and compare them in some detail to what actually happened in the crash. So some motorbike fuel tanks are designed to be, they're, they're raised relative to the seat that you're on. And in a crash, you tend to go forward and your pelvis can smash into the fuel tank. Now, if on the other hand, you've got a gentle sloping fuel tank, you won't strike the fuel tank on the way forward. For that matter, you might want to put an airbag into the fuel tank. So you're looking at that type of thing. You're looking at the types of injuries that you see from seat belts. You know, can some um, types of seat belts be more dangerous than others? I was involved in, in two cases, actually, in, in Australia where the airbag malfunctioned, where the person probably died as a result of the airbag deploying incorrectly with explosive force. So certainly in those cases, it becomes critical to identify those cases that this airbag injury is well in excess of what's expected. Something's gone wrong here. Uh, with one, actually, we thought initially it was a, it was a shotgun um, related death in some way, and we couldn't understand how. But in fact, it was the airbag. Because of the impact to the, to the bones and the face uh, or chest? Yes, well, or... Um, I don't know the full details of how these airbags worked, but effectively they exploded with much more force than is usually the case, which is eff- effectively a controlled explosion. 
with release of a large amount of gas into the bag. Um, this exploded with such force that fragments of metal, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, landed up going into the head. Wow. So this, the story is everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Before you get to the actual <laughs> pathology component yeah. and cause of death. A quick note before we move into the next part of the podcast. This section references incidents relating to single car accidents and violence against women. Please listen with care. Single accidents. Mm. Are you involved in single accidents at all? Single car accidents (laughs) with fatalities? Mm, Because I know often it's questioned, is it suicide? Is it an accident? And that's a really hard question to answer invariably. Um, I, I think it's fair to say you can never be definite about it. Um, a car smashing into a tree on a, in a curve of a street, you know, what happened? You might look for specific injuries on hands, um, you know, or did the person try and break, um, that type of thing. Was a seatbelt being worn? You know, what's the, previous, uh, the prior history of that person, you know, were there financial stresses? You know, was there an argument immediately beforehand? What do you find on toxicology? You know, and even then, how do you interpret that toxicology? Let's say you have a blood alcohol of 0.15. It's a high blood alcohol level. Was that to build up some Dutch courage? Or was it a person drinking and driving? Whose skills were impaired. Yeah, exactly, yeah. What sort of injuries would make you think that the person did try to escape injury versus deliberately mm, yeah. drove into that tree? Well, one of the things you look for is, and this is to a certain extent, trying to put your mind, yourself into the mind of the person driving. If they're holding a steering wheel really tightly with determination, I'm going to smash into that tree, um, you, you get first, uh, various injuries to the palms of the hands, lacerations to the palms of the hand, various types of fractures that can extend all the way into the forearm. That might be indicative. That, that in aircraft crashes, they're, they're often called control surface injuries, which show that the person, hopefully, was fully conscious at the time of the crash. Um, in reality, the research which we've done shows that it, it, it's not that reliable, but, but it's, it can give you an indication. Um, on the other hand, possibly the person fell asleep, in which case they're relaxed, they might not even have their hands on the steering wheel at all, and there might be no injuries to the hands. You know. Or they might put up their hands, protect their face as they crash. You know, Again, intentional crash. And this time, they get glass-type injuries on their hands. You know, which you wouldn't expect if the person's holding the steering wheel. So you put all of those things together and you you try and build a picture. How reliable that is, I don't know. Certainly it's not the only thing you'd consider. Um, But it can all sort of lead you in a direction. So in terms of your cases, do you remember your very first case? I I have not asked you this yet. (laughs) Your very first case. I do. I do. Um. It's actually a tragic case, and it stayed with me all this time because I think I got it wrong. And effectively, what it was was a young woman who was found dead. I I was being supervised and all the rest of it. This is going to be a straightforward case for you. I don't know what 
that supervising pathologist was thinking. But in any case, I, I did the post-mortem and she had a belly full of blood. So there was bleeding somewhere in the abdomen. It turned out that she was pregnant. She was in her second trimester of pregnancy, around about five, six months or thereabouts. And she had ruptured her uterus. Now that's vanishingly uncommon. I was with her, you know, and I asked around and all the rest of it. And in the end, it was we decided it was a spontaneous rupture of the uterus. I've come to the conclusion I was wrong. I am now convinced it was a homicide. It was a missed homicide. And, and of course, the problem is that especially with abdominal trauma, blows to the front of the abdomen often don't leave external injury. So there's no bruising. No bruising. And that's no surprise. It's not at all uncommon to have no bruising to the front of the abdomen following a blow. And um, I, I just... And that's why the, so many partners who are committing domestic violence do that, the kicking and punching. It's not just, mm. if it did bruise, it's not visible to the world. Yeah, But then if they're seeing a doctor... Yeah, there's nothing there. There's abdominal pain and that's about it. Yeah. And pregnancy increases your risk of domestic violence. It does, it does. Um, you know, now, that's the first case that I remember. Unfortunately, I have no way of going back to that case in reality. But, but even if you did, what could you have done exactly. differently? But if we decided early on that this was probably a homicide, at least there could have been a police investigation into it as opposed to, gee, you know, who would have thought? How that unlucky. Just, that just never happens. Wow. You know, but in reality, yeah, I, I think it was something much more evil than that. But obviously that has stayed with you. It has. Absolutely it has. Thank you so much for joining us today on Crime Insiders Forensics. Thank you, Kathy. It's been an absolute treat, Joe, talking to you, and it's been a while. But thank you so much for sharing your concerns and being so human about particularly your first case because that's a massive thing to deal with even now. So I really appreciate your honesty and your humanity. Thank a you. pleasure. Thank you. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly. <laughs>